And uh, if you could turn your Bibles to Ephesians, we are in a series that we started last week in the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter two. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand and uh, Dustin in the back can get you a, one of our black Bibles. And as we uh, get started, um, what I want to do is everybody stand up, just right where you're at, and I want you to find somebody that you have never met before or said hello to, and say hello, all right? Go for it. There's so much love in the house. Um, we're talking about the church today, and you just greeted the church. Let me ask you this. What are you, what are you passionate about? Um, some people are passionate about crazy things, like summer, for instance. There are some people that are passionate. I actually just spoke with one this morning, passionate about summer. Um, I'm passionate about cold weather right now, especially in this heat. Is anybody zapped of energy this morning? Say amen. Amen. Um, some people are passionate about football, right? Grown men with painted faces and painted bellies, shirtless in 40 degree weather, screaming, jumping up and down over 18 year olds running up and down a field. What are you passionate about? Let me ask you this. Would you say you're, you have a passion for the church? How would you answer that, I wonder? Uh, Joshua Harris, a pastor down in D.C., says that some people have a passion for the church like they have a passion for the grocery store. My wife, um, my wife knows that I love her when she gives me a grocery list and I say yes. <laughs> All right. I, I mean... The grocery store is like this uh, necessary but rather unfortunate thing uh, for me and probably, I don't, I don't think many of us would say I'm like passionate about grocery stores, you know? I mean, we enjoy like going to a grocery store that's clean and cool and uh, makes, the, makes the experience a little more pleasant, a little more endurable, but who's going to be passionate? about grocery stores. And for a lot of us, when we hear passion for the church, we kind of feel kind of similar. Like, you know, I, I'll go, but it's saying I'm passionate. I'm passionate for the church. Seems like a somewhat, somewhat of a stretch. Now, as we get into this today, I, I want to say this. I want you to have a passion for the church primarily because God has a passion for the church. Um, I brought a piece of art with me today. I am not an artist really myself, um, but I like art. I'm somewhat of an art enthusiast. This is a, uh, a piece that I got in Mexico. I did a little work in Mexico, and when I was down there, I met an artist named Ricardo Urista. Everybody say Ricardo Urista. It's kind of a fun name to say. In Colotlan, Mexico. And um, he's, he's an artist, very passionate about what he does. He was actually, when I was there, working on a, um, a bust of David, King David, uh, as a shepherd. And he needed a head for it. And he looked at me and he thought I looked like David. I never knew what David looked like, but I guess I resemble him. And so he asked if I would model for him the head, I mean, for David. So there is a bust that looks like me somewhere in Mexico, <laughs> maybe in a museum. If you ever see it, take a picture of it and Instagram it or something. Let me know. But anyway, as a payment, he gave me three paintings, which was pretty legit, right? 
So he gave me this. Uh, I, I play guitar, and he let me take my pick out of his gallery. Passionate. Now, you might look at this and not really like it, all right? Ricardo Urista wouldn't care. He's passionate about what he does. He's passionate about his, his artwork. Now, here, here's, here's the reality about what we're, when we're talking about the church. Um, we're, we're talking about the very artwork of God, all right? We're talking about God's workmanship. We're talking about God's, something that God is doing. And so God then is very passionate about what he does. Very passionate about the church. So if you wanted to be friends then with Ricardo Urista, you should be passionate about his, his artwork, right? You should, have, you should have a passion for it. How much more should we have a passion then for, for the things that God has a passion for, namely the things that God is putting together? What, what we're in today is, is Ephesians chapter 2. And what we're going to see is, uh, is that the church is indeed uh, God's artwork, God's creative, God's creative work. There are three things in this chapter that I, I want to like really hit on. Um, it's a, it's, it's, this chapter two is just chock full of all kinds of truths and lines that could be preached. Uh, but there are three sort of major sections to this chapter that I, f- I feel that if we miss these, that we'll have to kind of go over the whole series again and do it all over just to, just to hit on them. So I want to give you a, a little bit of a roadmap where we're going today. The first is this. You see it in chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the first is man's depravity, that, that we are depraved, that we are, have a radical propensity to sin. We are utter, utterly depraved. The second is in verse, uh, verse 4 and verse 9. Uh, by grace, we are saved, okay? So utterly depraved human beings, saved by grace, okay? And then the third big section is in verse 21 and 22, in whom a whole structure is growing, joined together, grows into a holy temple. In him, you also are being built together to be a dwelling place. And so God is taking depraved individuals, making them glorious, saving them, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his grace. And then, like an artist, taking his paintings, putting us together, joining us together into an, a, a, a structure. Um, and it is more beautiful than any soaring cathedral. And I want you to think about this. If you were at Paul and Megan's wedding a couple weeks ago, you saw one of the most beautiful cathedrals uh, at least in Baltimore, if not this country. Um, probably not the world. I think Italy probably tops some of the cathedrals here. Beautiful. But think about this. What God is creating, even in this room, okay? We look around, it's like we meet in a rec center. I kind of joke about our cathedral here. You know, we're going to do tours of it one day. Um, what God is creating in this room is more beautiful than a soaring cathedral. It's more precious than a work of Picasso. And we should treasure it. We should have a passion for it. So what I want to do is I want to read the entire chapter of chapter 2. We're going to pray and then we're going to dive in. And uh, it is warm in this room, so we're going we're to work through it and um, try to find some cool space to land. Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to stand with me as we read this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he saved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off and having been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God, as we dive into this chapter, Lord, we recognize that we could probably spend a year here and and have more work to do. Um, God, I just ask that you give us grace this morning uh, as, as we work through this chapter. Open our eyes uh, to the truths that you have for us. I pray that this, these words will become living as your spirit works through them and in our hearts. God, I pray that as we uh, look at ourselves, as we remember who we are, uh, that we were once dead, our depravity, our propensity to sin, I pray that we will be reminded then of your grace and how beautiful of a salvation it is. And then God, as we look at each other and as we recognize that we are each stones being built together in this place for your purposes, we ask that you do the work that we cannot do on our own and that you unify us. Make us into a place where your spirit dwells, where your spirit is powerful and active where it's seen. God, if there is uh, anyone here today who has walked through these doors uh, in, in utter discouragement, I ask that you lift them up. If there's anyone here who walked through these doors who's denying the, the sin that's continuing in their life, I ask that you convict them. Lord, this is for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. little context uh, as, as we begin. Um, quiz from last week. Ephesians was written to who? The Ephesians. That's good. You guys were listening. Um, the church in Ephesus, most theologians believe, was anything but monolithic, which means... Uh, the church in Ephesus did not consist of just one kind of people, one people group. Ephesus was a port city, and so then representatives from all over the world lived in Ephesus. And what we find then in this church, very clearly even in the scriptures, is that there's diversity here. There's different people coming from different backgrounds. And the, the, the biggest uh, division 
that was existent in this day and that they're feeling in this church now is the division, this age-old division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Those from Israel, those who have Israel, Jewish blood, and those who are non-Jewish, known as the Gentiles. And what Paul is now seeing here come together in this church in Ephesus is remarkable. It's something like he's never, he's never experienced or seen uh, before. I want to give you a, a little insight into sort of the divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles and kind of what's going, going on here in this context, in this, in this, um, in this culture. Socially, the barriers were, were massive. If you were a Jewish boy and you married a Gentile girl, or if you were a Jewish girl and you married a Gentile boy, they would carry out your funeral for you. You were as good as dead. Gentiles were seen uh, in this culture as nothing more than, uh, quote, fuel for hell. As far as worship goes, the distance was was visible. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the temple? You guys are a pretty well-educated church, right? In the temple, the temple was sort of split into different divisions. And so you had, had the, te- the actual temple, which was elevated off the ground, okay? And on that same level now was, let's just say we're walking from the temple, was the court of priests. This is where the priests could come into. Same level as the temple. Walk through that court, and you're now in the court of Anybody remember? The court of Israel, which was as far as lay Jewish men could go. Walk through that court and you are now in the court of women, which was the, the furthest place that Jewish uh, women could go. Now, you get to a wall right here. You walk down. All right, this was all on the same level right there, all right, on that, on that platform. You now walk down five steps. All right, so just imagine in your mind, five steps. There's another platform with a wall. Once you pass that wall, you have another 14 steps to walk down, all right? Now you have another wall. You pass through that wall, and you're now in the court of Gentiles, which was the furthest Gentiles could go. Now, trespassing, if a Gentile would go beyond that wall right there, it wasn't uh, trespassers will be prosecuted. It was trespassers will be killed. As a matter of fact, in Acts 21, you can read it later, Paul has an Ephesian, of all people, with him in the temple, takes him too far, and he's about to be hung. And so then when, when, we, when we look at this passage here in, in uh, chapter 2, and we, we read verses like verse 11. He says, remember, at one time you Gentiles were called uncircumcision by what is called the circum- circumcision. He's calling it out. He's like, look, this is what we used to call you. Those who, who are of the, quote, circumcision, which by the way, he says was done by the hands of man. We used to call you the uncircumcision. He's saying, let's be honest. In, in our natural state, like if we just live life naturally, we, there's no way that we should be together. We have this massive social distance between, with this massive spiritual distance between us. You look at verses, like, uh, look at verse 14 right here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility. We know exactly what Paul's talking about. This dividing wall. Gentiles, yeah, you could, you, could, you could see the temple, but that's about as close as you could get. Or we, we look back. Look at verse 10. And let, me, let me say this. Paul is observing this Ephesian church. He's seeing Jews and Gentiles coming together, being built up to be the body of, of, of Christ. And the, the word that he uses to describe what he's seeing 
verse 10, for we are his, what's that word right there? Workmanship. The Greek is poema, which, which could also be translated his artwork. We are his workmanship. We are his work of art. And here is the work of art that God is doing. I want you to see it. We're, this is kind of where we're, where we're heading this morning, all right? This is what I want you to see, what, what I want you to have in mind. Look at verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is Jesus' work of art. As he's taking these stones, which are cut in all different ways from all different backgrounds, and doing a work that is impossible by man. And creating a body, creating a building that is more beautiful than any soaring cathedral, in whom his very spirit will dwell and live and be active. Now, in, in order to understand, fully understand sort of this, this masterpiece that is being created, what I want to do is, is go back to verse 1, um, and we're going to look at verse, the first eight verses. Uh, we, we can't understand how beautiful this masterpiece is. For instance... This piece right here, right, Ricardo's piece, he took, he went out and he found painting, or paint, of various quality, and he looked at it and he was like, this is pretty good quality paint, right? Like a good artist is going to use good quality stuff. Found a good quality stuff, and he, he used it to create that painting, all right? What we're seeing with the artwork of God, with what he, has, what he is doing here among us and what he's doing across the world and what he has been doing and will continue doing for however many years. What we're seeing is he is using utterly depraved paint. Paint with no quality. And we have to understand how depraved the building blocks are so that we can understand how beautiful this masterpiece really is, all right? So let's go to chapter, or chapter 2, verse, verse 1 with me. Look at it. He says, you were dead. You were dead. My prayer this morning is that those who are dead among us will wake up and you will realize that you are dead and by the way, if you realize that you are dead, you're not dead anymore, right? God woke you up. So my prayer is that you would wake up. For those of you who are redeemed, I, my prayer is that you will remember that you were once dead. You were dead. In, in Romans, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death then spread to all men because all sinned. Theologically, this is, the term is radical or total depravity, meaning that we are a sinner. Sin isn't something that we just willfully decided to do one day, and now all of a sudden we're guilty. But rather, we at our very core from birth, we are born sinners. We are as guilty as Adam in some fashion. We were present in Adam's sin. And as guilty as he is, we stand in that same guilt and we, we are born as sinners. We are radical, radically depraved. We have a radical propensity to, to sin. We are dead spiritually and we are born, we are born dead. A couple things this does not mean. One, this does not mean that you are physically dead, all right? You might be very much alive, enjoying life, yet spiritually as dead as a corpse. This does not mean that you are socially dead. You may have a great ability to love people, a lot of friends. 
You may be able to contribute a lot of good to the world. Yet spiritually, you're dead. And guys, this is, this is a, when he says you're dead, this is a real death he's talking about here. This isn't metaphorical. I mean, in, in response, in our response to God, in our response to the creator of this universe, we are dead. John Stott put it like this. He says the most vital part of man's personality, the most important part of who we are, the spirit is dead to the most important factor in life, and that is God. You did not know the love of the Father. You didn't know the, the, the joy of being redeemed. You did not know the grace that his Son brings, the, the, the filling, the power of the Holy Spirit. And while in many ways you are alive, the most vital part of your personality, spiritually, and your connection to God, as dead as a corpse. And it is a real death. Look at verse 1 again. It's, Paul paints a couple different aspects of what this deadness means. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and in your sins. Trespasses is this word. Uh, you're, you're going where you're not supposed to go. Think trespassing. All right? This speaks of man as a rebel. We rebelled against God. In your trespasses and in your sins. Sins means, for you theologians, what does it mean? Anybody? Missing the mark. Imagine someone shooting a bow and an arrow. Bam. And you miss the target. That's the idea of sinning. So sins then speaks of man as a, fail or as a failure. We, we were dead as, as rebels, rebelling against God. We were dead as failures, failing to live up to the standard that God demanded that we live up to. And as a dead body lies in a, in, in a casket and is quite comfortable, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins and we knew nothing of it. But think about this. If you were a Let's say you're physically dead, all right, and you're laid in a casket. You don't realize you're in the casket, right? Because you're dead, and your body's comfortable there. What would happen if you woke up? Any thoughts? I mean, is this not like one of the most horrifying thoughts that we have as human beings? Buried alive? If... If your body physically comes to life, you want nothing more than to get out of that casket. Amen? So what happens now? We are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We know nothing better. What happens when we come to life? I mean, we just, we want to get out. We want to move beyond. Like, all of a sudden, our eyes are open. Now, if you're sitting here, and you're thinking to yourself, like, you just can't see it. I just can't see how I have trespasses and I, and I have sins. You're probably like a dead body laying in a corpse. And God has to wake you up. So we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. We were rebels, and we were failures laying in this casket, and we knew nothing of it. Then he goes on, he says, following the course of this world. You're working a job. And you have an opportunity to make more money at that job. And all you have to do is lie. Just a little bit. Just fudge the truth a little bit. Following the course of this world. In regards to how we treat our sexuality, members of the opposite sex, in regards to the way that we treat marriage. We were once following the course of this world. In regards to the way that we treat people that are different from us, 
We, we, we had isolated ourselves. We prefer to just simply be around the people that are like us, that know us, that we're comfortable with. Again, we're following the course of this world. So we were dead in our trespasses and our sins and, our, and all we knew then was to just follow the course of this world and whatever the world was telling us to do, whatever the world was, that's, that's the route we took. And then he goes even deeper than that. Following the course of this world, following, he says, the prince of the power of the air. Now that is a fancy title for Satan, all right? And Satan is about... Uh, to talk about Satan in a, as, a, as a personal, real entity is about as fashionable today as wearing a mullet, right? Which I had to cut mine off. <laughs> it's just not fashionable. But the, the reality is this. We can't allow what's fashionable to, de- to determine the theology of our church, right? Though we did not though we did not know it, though we did not realize it. See, as a dead person, you, th- you thought you were free. The reality is, is you, were fo- being, you were following the prince of the power of the air. Satan was your Lord. Satan was your ruler. And this is what it led us to. This is the kind of life that it lived. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins, and we just did whatever our flesh felt like doing. Now let me just say this. Food, the desire to eat, Sleep, the desire to rest, sex, those desires in and of themselves are not bad. As a matter of fact, God gave us these things. They're, they're, we, we have a desire for these very good things. And here's the thing. The idea is our desire for these things and then our um, consuming these things ought to point us to the creator of these things. Amen? For example, this morning I woke up at 5 a.m. Anybody with me? I get up like, were you up at 5? Well done. Wow. I was up at 5 a.m. and made my little pour over, cup of coffee, right? Went to, my, went to the couch, opened my Bible, and I took a sip. And I was like instantly just glorifying God. You know what I'm saying? Like... Oh, praise God. And here's the thing. Listen, it's, that's what it's meant to do for us. I mean, God has given us good things to enjoy. I often tell, I, I have told my married friends, if you can't worship God, listen to this, when you're having sex with your, with your spouse, if you can't worship God in that moment, then you're probably sinning. There's, there's something you're not thinking right. These, these things, sex, food, rest, sleep, are meant to, 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 to give us sort of what we need for the body and then to turn us to worship and glorify the creator. Here's the problem, all right? This is as dead, fallen people. Here's the problem. Here's what we do. The things, food, sex, sleep, they become ends in and of themselves, they become gods. We, we just want more food because it makes us happy, because it satisf- satisfies the cravings of our flesh. We want more sex because it just makes us happy and it satisfies the craving of our flesh. We want more rest because we're just happy there. And this turns into gluttony, it turns into lust, promiscuity, it turns into... Laziness. This is the way we once were dead in our trespasses and our sins, following the course of this world, following our ruler, even though we didn't realize it, following Satan. 
And, and how it played itself out then was that we would just simply gratify every desire of our flesh. Here's the result. Look at the result. The end of verse 3. We were by nature, look at this word, children of wrath. Like, I can't think of a, a more shocking title for us as depraved, fallen creatures than children of wrath. God's personal wrath was upon us. As personal as His grace is in verse 9, His wrath was upon us. And guys, this, some of you, this just shocks all of your sensibilities. Can't talk about God's wrath. Because we love, like, we love John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, and he gave himself, or gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him, Right? And it's, we love it for <laughs> that God so loved us. And we hold it up at baseball games, right? But do we ever hold up the verse that comes just a couple verses later? John three thirty six, which talks about God's wrath being against those who are disobedient, who remain in disobedience. You see, God's wrath is real. But it's, it's nothing like human's wrath. I mean, human's wrath will always kind of hurt you. Human's temper, malice, revenge. A husband's temper will kill his wife. A, a, a son's Malice will cause him to never speak to his father again. But when we talk about the wrath of God, we have to think of it, okay, God is completely different than we are. And the majority of our wrath is opposed to who God is. His wrath does not reflect ours. God's wrath for sinners is not out of a temper. He's not just flying off the deep end. Malice is not, is not revenge. He's not getting you back for something that you did. But God's wrath is a, a con constant, personal, righteous, and good anger toward evil and sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air and his, his wrath was against us. Now, I want, I want to read this as Paul writes it because this is the next couple words, the next two words are just so good, okay? I feel like if I try to explain it, it's not gonna hit you like it should. So I want to read these verses one more time right here so you can sense what Paul is saying. Are you ready? Let's start with verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Look at the next two words. But God, being rich in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy. Guys, if my life did not have a but God in it, 
I would be a miserable creature today. 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you are wise by human standards, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. Genesis chapter 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Romans 5, for scarcely a righteous man will one die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. You were on the road to destruction. I was on the road to destruction, but God because he was rich in mercy. Some of you were lost and, and, and so filled with pride. You loved yourself more than anyone or anything else but God, being rich in mercy. Some of you were lazy, a glutton, just trying to satisfy the, every desire of your flesh, every craving of your flesh, and that's, it was completely just consuming you. But God, being rich in mercy. Some of you would say, I was, I was young, and I didn't know how to love my wife, and I ruined things. But God, being rich in mercy. Some of you would say, that you were so given to lust and to perversion, you saw no way out but God being rich in mercy. Others of you would say that you had anger that had been built up for years and years and years and you couldn't even pinpoint where it came from, but all you knew is that you would lash out. But God being rich in mercy. You were a stranger. You were alienated. You were separated from Christ. Separated from one another. But God, being rich in mercy, let's continue it. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then look at this next line. By grace you have been saved. My brothers and sisters, I want you to know this, the, the, the building blocks that God is using to create his masterpiece were not chosen because they had some kind of quality to them. I mean, one of the biggest lies that we can begin to tell ourselves, and I would say that the the prince of the air would begin to tell us is that we were chosen because we had some certain quality. Is that we are part of this beautiful thing. We are part of this structure, part of this building, this temple, this piece of art because we were like, like a really nice paint. But we've got to understand this. God is not like any other artist. He is not like any other architect who has to find some quality materials to work with. God found us when we were dead. And he woke us up. And look at, look at our response in verse, verse, uh, verse 9. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are his artwork, his piece, of, his piece of work created in Christ Jesus for good works. We woke up, we realized the casket isn't where we want to be anymore, and we bust out of it. We walk away from the trespasses and sins. God does a work in us. He wakes us up, and he takes materials that could otherwise not be used. I mean, this is why Paul is so passionate about the church. This is why, why he's so passionate about what he's seeing right there in, in Ephesus. It's because like in and of yourself, you guys didn't have what it took. But God, being rich in mercy, by grace you have been saved. 
So now we begin to see why Paul is so passionate about this church. Now, as, as an artist, would, would make a piece of art and would do what with it? What does an artist do after he makes this piece of art? Sticks it in the closet? Throws it in the trash? I mean, if it's a masterpiece, come on, somebody. Thank you. Puts it on display. Why did God save us? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, here's the word again, riches. Remember from last week? The blessings, the gifts that he has just poured upon us from the Trinity, the Father and the way that he chose us, the Son and the way that he died for us, the Spirit and the way that he fills us and seals us, brings us together, wakes us up so that he may put us on display, so that he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about this. God saved you so he could show someone else how kind he actually is. God saved us and has put us together so he could show the rest of the neighborhood and the world just how kind he really is. Because it's not by works which we have to boast. Guys, as we are coming here, as you walk into this, this room, what we're part of this morning is something so much bigger than we, than, than we can see, than we can feel. We're part of, I mean, do you know that the church is the one and only institution that God has promised that he will sustain? What this means is this. In a thousand years from now, Walmart will be no more. <laughs> Somebody said amen. In a thousand, I'll get a couple amens out of this one. In a thousand years from now, McDonald's will be no more. Some of you just got depressed. But in a thousand years from now, should Christ not return before then, in a thousand years from now, the church will be booming and be representing the glory and the image of God. That's just what we're part of. And we as a local church get to come together and like physically like realize that we are all individual building blocks. We're not a monolithic building all cut from the same stone, but we come from all different backgrounds. Yet we're being brought together in a way that shows the world the immeasurable riches of his kindness. Do you have a passion for the church this morning? Do you have a passion for what God has a passion for? Do you have a passion for this beautiful thing that God is putting together in our midst and, in, and all around the world? This is what I want to do. This is how I want to close, close out our uh, time together today. Something we typically don't do. I want you to turn where you're at if you would like to kind of move and connect with somebody that you don't really know really well, I mean, this is the prime time to sort of embrace one another as the church. I want to turn where we're at, okay? And I want to do two things. One, uh, well, three things, I guess. One, I want you to select a prayer, okay? I'm not going to ask all of you to pray, so if, if you're new here, or you don't have to freak out and think we're going to put you on the spot. I want you to select somebody in the group in your little circle to pray. Secondly, if there are prayer needs, meaning if, there, I mean, if there are things like that you are working through right now, you're like, guys, I need prayer. I want you to stop right now or right then and pray specifically for that person, okay? This isn't like taking prayer requests and then one person trying to remember all of them and we forget 40, 45% of them, right? If somebody has something to pray, I want you to stop right then and I want you to pray for that person, all right? 
And then when, when all needs are prayed for, I want that prayer to then pray for God's artwork, that God would continue to build his church here. And guys, as we are a young, budding, new church, we have to pray for this. We have to recognize what we're part of. We have to recognize the joy that it is to be part of this structure. We have to recognize too the, the, the uh, fleshly challenges it is to be part of this structure, to be part of God's artwork, and how often our flesh can get in the way of what God is, is trying to do. We need to beg God, build us up. Build us together. Unite us with a mortar that won't crack on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus being our cornerstone. So if we could do that, those of you back there just kind of gather together, just kind of clump together and let's begin. If you could all uh, bow your heads and join me in prayer, please. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for um, bringing us together as a, uh, as, a, as a body, as a building. And God, as we interact with one another, uh, we are reminded of the, that greater interaction that is the interaction that we have with you. And God, as we come here, uh, week in and week out, to worship together as we serve together throughout the week, as we unite in, in communities throughout the week and just try to do life together. God, we ask that you bless us. We ask that, as, as Paul prays for with the Ephesian church, that, that we truly become this, this, uh, this building, this, this, this tower put together of living stones, of different backgrounds and different walks of life, life, but we all share something in common, and that's that we were once dead. And by grace, we were saved. God, we ask that your spirit unite us, that we become the body of Christ, and that as we grow, as we move, as we do things, that we don't do things in our own power, we don't do things out of our own fleshly abilities, but that we truly are a body that is uh, being dwelled by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.